Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm not sure why. I've just decided now this is my new thing, John. I'm just going to do the Matthew McConaughey thing. I'm just going to lean into it fully. All right, all right, all right. We're glad you're here. Um, welcome to This Is Not Church, the podcast. Hey, how about that, John? We'll give it a, this is not church, the podcast. Soon to be followed by This Is Not Church, um, the coffee mug, and also the t-shirt. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, we have those two. So anyway, we are, uh, <laughs> my name is Nat. I am one of your hosts. As always, you get two hosts for the price of one. Uh, my brother, John, up in the, uh, up in the, the, uh, the hills of Northern California amongst the pot growers and the cattle farmers. Say hi, John. Hi, John. See, this is the problem. This is why you, this is, because you're just surrounded by beef and weed. So, no, you, say you, so say chill, that, you say that like it's a bad thing. No, no, it just explains an awful lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go smoke a J and go t- cow tipping. Oh, he goes the other way. I thought, I thought, you, I thought you smoked the cow and tipped the joint. Don't you sm- I've had some of your smoke. Try tip, man. It's all right. You know how to smoke yeah. a cow. So. <laughs> it is intoxicating. All right, all right. All right. I'm going to stop now. Stop it. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to introduce our next guest. Uh, I'm going to read through uh, their bio real quick. Um, and again, as always, this does no, this doesn't come anywhere close to encapsulating the person. I just want to give you a little bit of, of a background before we jump into conversation. So our guest today is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Let me read this the way I wrote it. So Dr. Robin Espinoza, I didn't write this. Let me read this the way I stole it from their Amazon site. Um, Dr. Robin Espinoza, Henderson Espinoza is a transgender activist, Latinx scholar, and a politicized theologian working in the borderlands of church and faith communities, social change movements, and higher education institutions. Important to note about Dr. Robin is that they are non-binary, transgender Latinx who are trained as collect, I'm sorry, as a constructive philosophical theologian and holds a PhD in religion from the University of Denver. They attended seminary at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary on the campus of Northwestern University, Chicago. Um, Dr. Robin teaches in the field of theology and ethics while also is engaged in the work of social change by participating in varying social justice projects. Dr. Robin is the founder of the Activist Theology Project, a collaborative project working to incubate sustainable change in innovative ways using advocacy, art, semantics, and storytelling. All right. And I hope that us making light of the way I said this does not undermine the gravity of all the great work that you're doing. Welcome, Dr. Robin. We appreciate you being here. Thank y'all so much. I kind of wish that we were in Northern California smoking tri-tip and smoking a joint together. Yeah, for real, right? <laughs> I mean, like, in, in, in that which would be order? a podcast. That would be a podcast. Yes. That, that would record. be what I'd watch, right? It'd be like yeah. just, a, just, a, just a bunch of people sitting around a campfire somewhere smoking tri-tip and maybe, you know, hitting that blunt here and there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> says the pastor of the small church. I'm kidding. Parishioners, I would never. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I'm not so, laughing. Is, it a, is, is Dr. Robin something you go by? Is that a, is that a or is that I, it's in your bio? I didn't know if that was something that you that you use like for real or or are we just being clever? Yeah, no, that no. I mean, I utilize that PhD because maybe you know I'm I'm just a person from Texas, trained in West Texas, moved to the big city of Chicago, and then found myself with a PhD. So I'm, I try to use it for good. Absolutely. And when I am talking with the dominant culture and like cis white men, 
let's level the playing field. I'm Dr. Robin and your pastor or mister. And, you know, let's, let's use those titles for good, but let's not use them in a way to marginalize people or oppress people. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, I mean, and, and, you know, you obviously worked your, worked your tail off to get your PhD from Northwestern. That's, that's no small feat. Right. Um, so you're, you're deserving of any honorific that goes <laughs> along with that. So from a guy who, who, who barely got a bachelor's degree from University of Maryland, I tip my hat to anyone who has gone on to higher and higher education. So thank you. Um, I appreciate all that. So I just, I just wanted to say that first off. Um, John and I have purposed, as we said, offline for the very beginning when we conceived of this podcast, we said we would seek out and search out a diversity of, of perspectives um, that we would try our very, very best to give a voice to people who maybe don't have, this, have, have a voice as often and to use what, what little bit of platform we have to, to push some, some, some things and to educate people, you know? And I think, that's, I think that's important. So with that being said, I'll ask you the same question we ask all of our guests, except when I forget and they have to remind me, all of Carolyn Whitney Brown was like, aren't you going to ask me about that? Um, but <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, if you just kind of give us a, like a little rundown, a little snapshot of your, of your faith journey, kind of where you've come from, where you find yourself heading, any, anything you, you think is pertinent would be great. Yeah. So, I mean, I first have to say I was born to a Mexican woman, not of this country, and an Anglo man, which makes me a mixed race Latinx. And when I was very young, my Mexican mother, um, oh, Whataburger. I love mm. Whataburger. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to throw that in your <laughs> face. And they said it right. Yeah. You don't, do you, oh, yeah, because they're from Texas and they yeah. know Whataburger is not what it's. Yeah, so you don't, y'all don't have Whataburger in... Uh, we, we do. They just opened one not far from my house. Yeah. Glory, hallelujah. Yeah. 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 All you need now is an in and out and you'd be set for life. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to distract you with my, my giant Whataburger cup, my 86-ounce drink. Yeah, I digress. <laughs> so when I was very young, my Mexican mother wanted me to have the best education possible. And so she sent me to Catholic school. And she took a lot of heed from my family for this because I think my family feared that I would be indoctrinated. Hmm. And so, you know, my faith journey was very much shaped by being in Catholic school, by attending mass three times a week. But I also had a come to Jesus moment at a small Southern Baptist church in Longview, Texas, which is where I was born and, and lived for 12 years. And was baptized at Macedonia Baptist Church. And so I had kind of this dual experience of going to Catholic school Monday through Friday and mass three times a week and the Macedonia Baptist Church on Wednesday and Sundays. And when I was 12, I moved to live with my white father in San Antonio, Texas, and wanted to go to church, but he liked to have a beer every once in a while. So he didn't want to go to the Baptist church because Baptists don't drink, dance, smoke, or anything else, play cards. Right. So we went to the Lutheran church and then I was confirmed Lutheran. So if you ask people, technically I'm Lutheran because I was confirmed in the Lutheran tradition, but really my tradition is Baptist with a small b. And... And I stayed connected to the Baptist church throughout high school, went back uh, when I was in high school to the Baptist church, had a great youth minister, felt a call to ministry, but because I have a vagina, they, that, that wasn't acceptable. And 
you know, went on to study theology and philosophy as an undergraduate student and still felt the call to, you know, study and nurture that. But, you know, because, you know, I was also coming out as queer and I was also dealing with my racial identity as a mixed race Latinx. And my faith journey was one where I was socialized in conservative white evangelicalism. But my my intuition was that church was more than that. But I, but because I was surrounded by a lot of white people doing white evangelicalism, and like I went to college, for example, with Matt Chandler, who is the pastor um, oh, yeah. at, at the Billis Church in the metro, the Dallas metro area. But he Yikes. he led um, Grace Bible Study for a long time, and so like Matt and I were in class together, and so I I saw very up close how charismatic white men were applauded for their gifts, but people who thought deeply or who were curious about stuff were demonized. Yeah. And and I was and I was one of those curious people who, you know, I, I was, you know, I was just very curious about the things that I was learning. And I would carry around these stacks of books by feminist theologians because I needed other witnesses in the class with me. I needed other voices in the class with me other than cis, white, straight men. You know, and I was dealing with my gender at the time and trying to figure out, like, I don't feel woman or female, but I don't feel male or man. And I didn't have access to the language of transgender until I moved to Chicago for seminary. And then I was like, you know, I don't feel straight, but I don't feel gay. And I was introduced to this language of queer, where for me, it was, a, it was about an orientation to difference. So that's all part of my faith journey that, you know, like my gender and sexuality was happening at the same time as I was studying theology and ethics. And I just, when, when I left Texas, I, I was in West Texas for about six years. And when I left West Texas and moved to Chicago, I just decided to leave the church because I was like, it's enough. I've had enough. No more bullshit. I'm just going to study. And I fell in love with the, with studying and fell in love with the tradition. And th- there was a, there was a real beauty to what I was studying. But when I was in the local church, I couldn't see that beauty. I couldn't find that beauty. So I kept leaving. So you find yourself in Chicago. Um, I think that's a really interesting intersection, though. Thank God you didn't decide to go like Dallas Theological Seminary right, or something. Right. Or something. So as you're wrestling with these issues of gender and sexuality yeah. and all this other stuff, thank God at least you were at Northwestern. Yeah. Um, where, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sure it wasn't uber friendly, but it had to have been much better than a very conservative seminary or Bible school would have been. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, the Garrett Seminary, which is on the campus of Northwestern, is a United Methodist seminary. And okay. if you know anything about United Methodists, they, they are struggling with the gender and sexuality issue even to this day. Oh, it's, yeah. They're going to split over it at some point, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so, you know, 20 years ago when I was in seminary, uh, it was it was pretty hostile. And Okay. You know, I, I, I was I was closeted to to an extent. I just didn't talk about my personal life at, when I was on campus, but like I was out in the rest of my life. Um, it was a very bifurcated life. But 
you know, I didn't feel safe and I was there to study. I wasn't there to make friends necessarily. And so I just sort of sucked it up and did it the way I thought I should do it. Because there's this thing like when you're becoming a scholar, you learn how to play the game. You know, it's a chess game. And I figured out how to play the game. And for me, that was to silence the parts of me that were screaming the loudest. And, mm. you know, you, you you learn how to code switch and you learn how to answer the questions in a certain way that you're telling the truth, but you're not telling the whole truth. And I remember sitting in class one day and my, my advisor, who is my favorite teacher, she said, if the unit can be baptized, then LGBTQ people are affirmed. And that was all I needed to be okay with myself. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second too, because I have heard, and, and you're, a, you're a seminary student, so your knowledge of this would likely be much better than mine. But I had heard, I have heard from some scholars that the term eunuch in scripture is a, is a very nondescript kind of word. It doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. And so we have, a lot of us have that term, you know, and we, we have a very specific definition, but um, it was sort of broadly like someone who just didn't fit into normal sexual gender right. roles or whatever. Right. So it could have been anything from an actual physical eunuch to somebody who was effeminate or somebody. And they were right. barred from temple life, right. period. So right. Jesus, or so, so, the, so the eunuch being baptized should have spoken volumes about the inclusivity of the gospel, right? Right, but you know, when we don't consider context and we and when we just are hell bent on a literal interpretation, we can harm people and we can weaponize scripture against people. And I think what I learned as a student of the tradition and a student of the Christian scriptures is that context matters and lived experience matters and and when we ignore those things, you know, bad theology kills. And I think we're seeing that in our country right now and across the world. Like, just look at the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Putin had a come to Jesus moment, some conservative evangelical m- moment. And he's calling Zelensky a Nazi. So he's leveraging anti-Semitism against his own people. And using his theology to justify the war. And in my opinion, bad theology kills. And Putin is embodying bad theology. Yeah. Well, and then just, you know, and then throw out his, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church's assertion that, you know, Ukraine has gone too far European. They're too inclusive. They're too, you know friendly towards towards the gay community there and that now and now suddenly you have what should be an institution that is the bulwark against that kind of stuff right who's actually just climbed right into bed with the the Russian empire to to slaughter and kill yeah so you're right bad theology does kill on a on a homegrown level on a more micro level for us bad theology kills as we see people inside of your community um, at a higher risk for suicide and self-harm um, and other kinds of, of, of behaviors that are, 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 are risky um, simply because they're what? They're not allowed to, to fully express who they are, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels so close to home because, you know, I'm in my mid-40s now and 
when I when I look back 20 years ago, I could ask the questions about gender. Yeah, you know, it made some people uncomfortable, but I I wasn't scared for my life like I am now. Yeah. And and when I think about young people who are in their teens and in their 20s, <clears throat> especially young people whose parents could go to prison for life for for advocating for their kids yeah. to have some kind of gender affirming care it's really scary and it and it and it, you know first it was abortion and now it's trans kids and it it feels very scary that the state wants to control bodies in the same way that religious institutions have controlled bodies for millennia. And if we don't see a connection there, and if we don't see the overlap of empire and religion, we're missing something. Well, and it's, and it's just so, it's so damn idiotic of these people. You know, it wasn't that many months ago that these people, when they were told they might have to get jabbed in the arm, uh, are screaming yeah. at the body, top of the, right? Are screaming yeah. at the top of their lungs. My body, my choice. Right. And they don't see right. the irony in the right. bullshit that they're spewing when it comes to now the LGBTQIA community and not giving them the power to also say, "This is my body, my choice." Right. And right. It's just, right. I mean, it's it's beyond ironic. It's beyond stupid. It's beyond fucked up. It's beyond scary. Yeah. I think we could diagnose this though, John. Robin, what do you think? We can diagnose this because you know, when you, when you, when you, a lot of people, when they're diagnosed with, when they first have an inkling, they might have COVID. What do they lose? They lose their sense of smell. I think you can diagnose yourself as a fundamentalist when you start to begin to lose your sense of irony. Right. (laughs) Like like any, like all your self-awareness just goes like, all of a sudden you just go, oh shit. I can no longer sense irony. I might have fundamentalism. That would be a problem. And you should probably yeah. go get that treated. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, but you have the laws that you're talking about. And, and at the same time, you have what's going on in Florida, right? With the, with the, the invasive, you know, the, the invasion into the curriculum, even. Right. What they're calling that the don't say gay bill, right? Where you're right. not supposed to right. even. So how is it, how is it, do you think that we are just, and I don't, I don't think carte blanche were doing this, but in certain places in the country, you see, um, I just see it's going backwards. Yeah. And it scares me because all the progress that I feel like we made in the last 10 or 12 or 15 years, um, they are very, very quickly trying to unravel. Yeah. I mean, it, when you look at the ways in which politics have regressed, you know, I think we, we saw this in, in the eighties when Reagan was president and, you know, Bush followed. Then, then you had some headway with Clinton, but Clinton criminalized drug use. Yeah, right. exactly. Right, and filled the prisons with black and brown people. And then you have George W. Bush, who accelerated the war in Iraq. And then maybe we made a little bit of strides with Obama, but you know, Obama. Um, yeah, he loved his drones. <laughs> yeah, and and he removed lots of immigrants. Yeah. He he deported more people, right? So we we need to look at this in context and really and really consider 
yes, it was it was a triumph to have a black president, but in exchange for having a black president, we get more deportations, we get more drone warfare. And and so, you know, what's the cost-benefit analysis here? You know, are these two parties what we need for human flourishing? I don't think so. For me, every time I vote, it's choosing the better of two evils because yeah. when you look at it on paper, Republicans and Democrats look a lot of the same. You know, they yeah. vote very similarly. The military budget for Democrats is less than the Republicans, but, you know... Things look very similar, and I and I'm just like, well, I don't think that's working for us, and 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 it's all part of empire religion, and so how do we untangle ourselves from the bullshit and actually provide a political structure for a governance that will create conditions for flourishing? That's my question. Yeah. And I, I, I tell you what, from from where I sit, I just don't know if it's possible. It just seems like the whole damn thing is so corrupt. And you're right; it's like the you know the further they tack one way or the other, they're still they're always trying to tack towards the middle anyway. Right. So you know, even our even our current president is, you know, every time he's attacked for being too liberal, he tacks to the right and says, "Well, yeah, but I'm I'm still going to drill in the Arctic right. wildlife refuge. I'm still going to you know he's you know he's he would still I guarantee su- support some sort of military conflict if he felt like it would." you know, advance his goals. So I don't know. It, I don't, I don't think we're going to see any sort of political solution, but at the same time, this ebb and flow thing, doesn't it seem like it just gets exhausting. I oh, mean, it's, it's, it's completely, and, and completely. if it's exhausting for me as one who doesn't really, I mean, I have skin in the game because I have people that I care about and I love about who are in those communities. But if it's exhausting for me, I don't know what the word is for y'all. I mean, What's what's beyond exhausting? Yeah, I mean it's it's really crippling in lots of ways. Uh, you know, when I when I look here in Nashville, and I see that there are no affordable housing for anyone unless you can take a mortgage out of like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, it's just um, it's untenable. You know, we're, we're in untenable times. Yeah. I worry for my kids who were in their twenties now yeah, and who are, you know, you know, trying to, trying to do that thing of, you know, that, that, that so-called American dream where we're supposed to get married and have kids and buy houses. And, you know, some of those things seem very out of reach for right. them, you know? Right. And, uh, so yeah. And then, like you said, add, add to that, add to that, the, the myriad problems that, that come along with government overreach and, and them starting to get, you know, I, I don't know. I, at some point I wish they would just decide that, that they'd no longer give a shit about what people do with their personal lives. Right. And maybe focusing on things that actually, like you said, would, would help human flourishing. How about mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And stop making these, these divisions and all these, you know, sort of black and white and binary choices and trying yep. to stick everyone to a box. Um, yeah. But before we forget, too, I don't want to get too far down the conversation before we forget to mention that you've got a book coming out and we want to talk about that. So that's in a, well, by the time this airs, it may have been released. But um, talk to us about the, the book. What is the title of your book? Yeah, the book is called Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. And, you know, it was my attempt to try to recover the body as a way to rethink democracy. And so Mm -hmm. sort of the argument is that 
trans embodiment is a vision for democracy and that we can learn a lot from getting into our bodies and you don't have to be transgender to envision democracy, but you do have to have a good relationship with your body in order to be in right relationship with others so that we can create a cultural body that can shape and shift our democratic body. And so I share stories in the book about, um, you know, what bodies count, uh, what is a body, how do we think, how do we rethink bodies in, in an age of terror and surveillance? Um, how do we be in right relationship with people? What does it mean to have a felt sense of our bodies? You know, so many, um, so many white folks are disconnected from their bodies or they disassociate. And this is part of a culture of whiteness. Uh, so many white people are disconnected from their ancestral heritage. And so I wanted, I want to try to encourage people to suture the wounds of their ancestral lineage, get into your body. You know, living, living life is more than just living from the shoulders up. Living life is a fully embodied aspiration. And it's expressed in community. And so how do we, how do we, um, you know, how do we create community with ourselves and with each other? Because, you know, when I look around, I, I see a lot of people who are wondering, like they want to do the right thing. They want to ha- be the right anti-racist person but they don't have the embodied awareness on how to do that. And so I'm hoping that this book connects the dots for folks and helps them have an embodied awareness and not just talking points and not just like, oh, I have my one black friend who teaches me everything, but there is a real embodied awareness on how how to be better, how to do better. Nat and I recently talked to um, Lisa Sharon Harper about her yeah. recent book. And it, it was a really... It was an eye-opening moment when you know if we talked about this idea that white people have lost their culture. Yeah, white people have replaced it with this idea of whiteness. Right, right. That uh, the idea of whiteness is now more important than where I came from. Right, to the point where I have the ability to find my history, whereas in some of my African siblings don't, or African American right. siblings don't. Right, they have, they have been separated from their from their history to the point where they don't know. But we have chosen whiteness over the ability to learn about my own culture. Right. And so one of the things that was brought up was just this idea of like a census, right? Where you write down or anything, any piece of paper where you write down your ethnicity. I check the box that says white, right? I don't check a box that says Irish American. Yeah. I don't check a box that says whatever. But every every other race has to choose a box that's connected to their ethnicity. Yeah. Whereas whiteness has controlled us to the point where I am, I am, I am, I'm just white. Yeah. With no culture to back that up other than, well, the scary racist shit that we, that we've, that we've built (laughs) around it, right? Typical stuff like you got no rhythm and you can't jump, but that's different. (laughs) That's actually, for me, it's very true. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, so when you say disconnected from our own bodies, that's kind of where I was, that's where I, that's where I landed too. I, I immediately yeah. thought of Lisa Sharon Harper's, um, our conversation with, with her, where she was talking about whiteness as a construct. 
you know, as a as really a mythology of this of this way. To, yeah. Well, and then and then on top of that, then whiteness is normative, right? Right. Everything right. else is put in comparison to whiteness. Whiteness but, becomes the norm. Right. But then from a political standpoint too, Robin, don't you see this too? That that white whiteness becomes a voting block. Oh, absolutely. And we see this in the election of of of, of the Donald. Mm-hmm. When we see that 83% of white male evangelicals, I actually think just white evangelicals in general, voted for this person who is the antithesis, really, of anything Christian or evangelical. But as a block, they kind of moved in lockstep to to support this person. And in, and in my first book, Activist Theology, I talk about that being the white hegemonic block. Yeah, that, that it's not just a white block; it's it's hegemonic, right, right? And 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 that harms people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because doesn't it? I mean, in, on the one hand, it really creates a false majority, right? Um, because all of a sudden, now you have everybody collected up into this one big voting block you call white, and now they look like most. Well, that's most of us. Um, when in reality, there, there's not a there's not a clear majority there, except by this construct, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and and the harm comes in. And John, what John just said, which is echoing again what Lisa Sharon Harper mentioned, is that the harm comes in, and that that becomes um, that becomes normative. Right. That becomes the thing to which and by which we compare everything else. And and so, um, yeah, it's just I'm, I'm not sure the harm goes deep and it's complex. Well, and the harm then is weaponized against those who are different. So th- I think there are layers to this or tiers to it. And I think we need to be mindful that whiteness as a construct, it is socially constructed and there's power there and religion is complicit in this. I mean, I, I call what we're seeing right now Christofascism, which is which is what Dorothy Zoulay talked about um, in The Rise of Adolf Hitler uh, where, you know, history repeats itself. You know, I always yeah, heard that yeah. growing up and I never did quite understand it. Um, but this country, white people in particular, don't have a historical memory uh, because they're so disconnected from their roots. And there's so much cultural trauma for white folks. And we need to be clear that, that you know, many of us don't have a historical memory. I mean, my family migrated from Mexico and because of whiteness, I don't have access to that history. When we see history repeating itself almost on steroids. Yeah. And I think what we're going to, I think what we're going to see in the case of Russia and Ukraine uh, is another genocide of white on white violence. And we need to remember that racism comes from Europe, European white on white violence. So, this is another example of history repeating itself and empire religion, just like Constantine endorsed it. Um, Putin is accelerating it. And this country, there's an acceleration of empire religion. And, you know, I, I like to call myself a Jesus follower. I like Jesus. I like the teachings of Jesus. And if we were more attuned to the teachings of Jesus than the dogma of religious institutions, we would be a different people. Oh, 100%. But we, you know, we're, we're not. And so therefore, no. we are not. Well, and we're in a position now where, where Vladimir Putin can come along and quote scripture. Right. And justify his war by saying, you know, no greater love has, has a man than his life. Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and 
let's not let the church off the hook because the Russian Orthodox Church is complicit in all of this as they have justified and, you know, promulgated this, this propaganda. Well, and follow the money. Yeah, exactly. Sadly, that's exactly true. I mean, oligarchy is present in this country too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Follow the money here too. I have, uh, I've worked in the oil industry for many years. Talk about an oligarchy. I mean, talk about, you know, talk about corporate, you know, interest that is just enormous. But, but yeah, the money is the, the money's the thing. And, and when you look at, so you say, you know, you mentioned history repeating itself. And we've had this conversation at least one or two times before, but I see this, this war in Ukraine, this travesty that's happening and unfolding where, you know, it, it reminds me of what happened in Nazi Germany, you know, it, it, where you see the church not just advocating their responsibility to be anti-violent and anti, you know, vocally anti-war, um, but actually um, being proponents of the war. And so, you know, the confessing church in Germany was a tiny, tiny fraction of the of the larger evangelical church in Germany who all either went along without protest or joyfully entered in um, to the Holocaust. And so, sadly, it doesn't seem like we've learned a damn thing. Well, like Nat and I have actually mentioned this before. Nat and I have talked about this. I could go online and grab you some quotes from Hitler and post it, but don't put his name on it. And not only would I get likes for it, I would probably get amens because he did the same damn thing too. Right. He, he used his Christian agenda to start That's off his true. war against right. the Jews. So it, we didn't learn from that because Putin's now <laughs> doing the same damn shit. Right. And, yeah. we're, and we have people on Fox News. We have people within the Republican Party. We have people within our own evangelical churches praising this guy as a God-fearing Christian who's just <laughs> doing the right thing and saving us from the horrors of the LGBTQ plus community, right? Right. And, you know, just saving the the heart of America. Oh my God, I'm, I'm just, it yeah. makes me sick. Just again, that, that hegemony comes into play, doesn't it? I mean, that is the, that doesn't, would you agree, Robin? That that's the that's that's the ultimate thing here is we're trying to protect our power. Oh, most certainly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that seems like at the end of the day, you can kind of narrow it down to the money and the power, the influence. I mean, I, I just did an IG live with Joe Lumen, and she asked me, "Can power ever be healthy?" And I said, "Well, yes, and." There has to be some humility when you're close to power or close to or have proximity to power because it's intoxicating. And when you don't have right relationship with power and when you when you aren't in community, yeah, then it's very easy to get duped by power. Look at look at people who, you know, become celebrities and even in the progressive religious circles. I mean, this is why this is why I only have five thousand followers and not twenty thousand followers, because I say things like this, like I'm not interested in celebrity culture and I'm not interested in being a talking head. I'm interested in being in relationship because relationship is what will save us. And there's so many people who are hell bent on worshiping the all-American dollar and getting money and making that coin that they're willing to forsake community for the sake of power and control. And I think that's that's bad theology. I mean, I I have watched some of my colleagues ascend to power 
within these Christian circuits. And, you know, they're not distributing any money to people. They're making six figures on book deals. They're not distributing money to those who are in need. And the Activist Theology Project that that I launched based on my scholarship, we have a whole reparations model that whatever we earn, we give back 10% and then we distribute to people in need here in Tennessee. And if if we continue to grow, then we will continue to give more. And and that is what I'm invested in. Like, how do we distribute or redistribute our money in a way to help create community and flourishing community instead of just hoarding it to ourselves? So you're a so you're a bad capitalist, is what you're saying. <laughs> I am. I'm you a bad saying, capitalist. So so what you're saying is so let me hear let me see if I hear you. So so you're saying that the accumulation of wealth is not the point of all of this. That's exactly what I'm saying. Ah, shit. Okay, <laughs> well, I gotta re- I gotta rethink some things. But this, that, that that's that's symptomatic though of the culture. Look at and it makes me sick because I'm I, I grew up in evangelical Christianity, and for a very long time, I'm here to tell you, I'll own I'll own that I wanted very badly to be part of that. Sure, because power the power is intoxicating. Sure, um, and yeah. it's not power in the sense of like I have control over people. It's pow- it's the power of recognition. Right, it's the power of affirmation, of validation. Um, and suddenly you're inside of a church model where, you know, more people coming to your church, more people coming to hear you speak, um, all of the, all, all that is is validate. Right. Well, I must be doing something right. All these people are coming to see me. Right. And it's so ass backwards. Um, but it's also, it's also you, narcissistic. Oh, it's hundred percent narcissistic. My friend Caleb, um, who I've mentioned uh, several times, who I love dearly, um, walked away from all of this stuff. And he, his, his, his mantra is, uh, is the stage is, is, is just the stage is intoxicating, you know, and it, and it, I don't care if it's a, if it's a two foot platform or a three inch platform, or if you're it, it, anything that elevates you a little bit suddenly is like, oh, if you're not careful, man, that is an aphrodisiac, right? you know, and suddenly you're willing to do what it takes to keep that sensation. It is a, it is an addiction. Right. So yeah, but it's one that I feel like if we're, if we're truly followers of Christ, we've got to lay that down. Mm-hmm. Um, then there has to be something we probably do fairly regularly. One hundred percent. Sometimes we pick it up and not even realize we picked it back up. I'm like, oh shit, I'm still carrying this thing. Let me, let um, me give you an example. Sure. So I have a platform, which I have a love-hate relationship with it. And I started talking with Derek Webb on Instagram and I Twitter. Love Derek Webb. Yeah. Great guy. And Derek gave me his telephone number. So now, you know, because t- telephone numbers, it means you have some proximity. That's proximity, right? yeah, absolutely. And so now I have to be very mindful about how I engage in this connection. Mm. And I have to be wise as a serpent. Yeah. Because what if Derek and I do an event together? How do, how do we steward that time? Because I want to compost platform culture and I want to do collaborations and conversations with people. Like I want to come to San Angelo and hang out with you in your coffee shop. That would be amazing. You should do that. I don't want to be at some cathedral speaking, right? I right. want to be with the people. But that's not the way Christian celebrity or celebrity in general works. Right. It's not, it's not compost. It's right. how it's can I stand out? be above, be isolated and be somehow revered. 
John and I have wrestled with this a little bit too, because we've had some people on the podcast who are fairly well known and we do get a little giddy sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Like, ooh, yeah. I've got Brian Zahn's phone number and I could call Brad Jersak tomorrow and he would come on. You know what I'm saying? There is a right. little bit of that. And if, right. that's, if, if it's that intoxicating on that small a level, and that's just Brad Jersak, I'm saying you're small potatoes, but, um, <laughs> but, but I can't even imagine what it's like to have Bono's phone number. Right. What's it like to like, share a stage with some, you know, I remember I read something about um, uh, somebody who had served, I don't know, I think it was Mick Jagger had come into a hotel or a restaurant or something like that. And, and they were asking about, well, what's, what's he like? Is he normal? And they're like, no, he's fucking weird. Yeah. There's no way. And they were like, the, the, and the point was like, there's no way you can live the life that that guy lives be catered to on the level that you are catered to, have everything sort of revolve around you and be anything remotely normal. Right. Within his sphere, I guess he's a nice enough guy. But to the average person, it would be like, what's that? That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the intoxication of power is, is, a, is a real thing. Well, and isn't it, we all feel like if we were given the opportunity and we were, you know, cause, you know, cause we were raised different and then we were just handed all this money and prestige and power that Oh, we would do it different. We'd we'd be better with it, and I don't think we would. I'm willing to give it a shot, though, John. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying, I I'm willing to be wrong about this. Um, so if anybody wants to donate a million dollars, that'd be great. We could just test drive the idea. We can split the yeah. million dollars. Okay, yeah, we'll see how you do and how I do exactly. And at the exactly. end of it all, when I'm broken, sad. Um, <laughs> Which is almost guaranteed to be the case. Um, right. But I will have a Tesla that I won't be able to charge anymore because I will have lost <laughs> my house with a charging station. Exactly. Well, so, you, um, know, you know, you hear about all these people who win the lottery. Oh, yeah. And, and they go bankrupt because they actually don't know how to, they, they don't know how to be with that much money. Right. I think the same thing is true for people with access to power. We don't know how to be in relationship with power. So we become narcissist. Yeah. And we step onto an accelerated platform and we like the spotlight. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I'm a Leo. And so you would think that I love the spotlight, but I actually don't love the spotlight. I mean, I like to, I like to be the center of attention when I'm in my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not when I'm on a stage. You know, I, I want to share the stage with people. I want to be in conversation, which is so antithetical to the norms of today's speaking circuit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're never going to get anywhere out there if, you, if you're not willing to step on some folks to get there, right? Right. right. I mean, that's, uh, I have, I don't know. I, like I said, that my, any dalliance I had with, <laughs> you know, any kind of, any, anything in that world is long. I've just, it's lost its luster. Um, but I'm not naive enough to think it couldn't rear its ugly head again. Right. I mean, if the opportunity came up tomorrow, we were, who were we talking to? Who was the, the singer, uh, Amy Quartz. Yeah. Amy Quartz, um, had at one point had, had been recording and doing some things and she got to go on tour with some fairly big name Christian singers. And I knew a couple of those names and even and like, even in just the conversation, like, Oh, that must've been so cool. Right. And I'm like, Oh, in the back of my head, I'm like, Oh dude, you're just like, <laughs> you're like falling for that thing again, you know? But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, I don't know. It's just, it's so pervasive inside of, especially Western evangelical culture, yep. you know, that I, I'm, I'm not sure how we, I guess we just root it out slowly, but surely, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's very strange indeed. Cause for me, my, my, I, I don't want to say theology cause it's not my theology, but my, I just, my guess my perspectives change 
the change in, in, in relationships with people, the change as I get to know people that are outside of my normal experience. And I start to go, okay, well, I have more in common with that person than I thought I did. Yeah. And so these conversations, that's why I think these conversations are so important. Um, because it's easy to imagine that somebody who's trans or somebody who's whatever is, you imagine them a certain way because you don't right. actually have any firsthand experience with anybody. And then suddenly you meet them, you discuss, you know, John will tell his story, has told the story about being in theater in the 80s as a, as a teenager. And, and all of a sudden, this group of people that had been demonized by the churches we were raised in, suddenly turns out they're, they're great. <laughs> and yeah. the, that no longer fits anymore with, with right, what right. we've been told. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you now you start to, as you begin to actually have relationships, you begin to care about people, um, those relationships begin to take priority over whatever ideology you think you have, right? Well, which is why I always say it's relationships all the way down for me. Yeah, it has if to we, be, right? If we don't know how to be in relationship with each other, then we certainly don't know how and won't know how to be in relationship with power. You know, community helps regulate the allure of power. And when we are better in community with people, then we are we are better leaders. I you know, I think I, I'm in a in a community with women of color and queer women of color and you know, we trust each other and 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 we speak the truth to each other. And we're each leading in our different ways, but we're all committed to composting platform culture. And so I think, you know, we have a shared vision of another possible world. And, you know, we can do things in decolonial ways. We can decentralize the self or the celebrity. And we can do things through a politics of togetherness. And a better, a better world emerges when we do that. Well, and uh, for us as white, middle-aged, hetero, whatever you want to call us, <laughs> uh, one, of the things yourself, that, well, one of the things that, that I've had to learn is to shut the fuck up. My group has had their voice out in front for a very long time. And we have done nothing but demonize, destroy, hurt, colonize, build empire. <laughs> I mean, it, it's... We need to get the fuck out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you know here my brother and I are running this podcast, right? But it's it's just a, a another platform for us to reach out to people who have a lot to teach us. Yeah, and but we have to be willing to ignore what we were taught, ignore what was pushed down our throats, and say, okay. You know, maybe maybe there are other stories out there, which there are, by the way, um, that are way more important than this whitewashed version that we have been taught. I mean, it's mm-hmm. only been in the last. I want to. I'm going to be. I'm going to be generous to myself and say it's only been in the, like the last five years that I've heard a lot of these stories mm-hmm. of African American communities, of the, the Latinx community, of the BIPOC community, right? Yeah. Of the trans of the LGBTQIA communities that. I'm like, oh shit, I never knew any of this. Yeah. I didn't know any of this. And it's our job to find this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about this before with other, uh, other people on the, uh, it's not, it's not your job. It's not, uh, uh, my, my one black friend's job to teach me all of black history. Right. We have to take the time 
to reach out and find this. It's available. Uh, we have the internet. It's not that hard anymore to get out there and find the, find this history, right? Yep. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, <my go-to. laughs> That's amazing, John. Um, no, I, I, uh, I find myself always um, in a place where I'm not sure exactly. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. There's a lot of information and I like it all. It's really, it's, it's helpful. So if you could tell, if you could, if you could give advice to someone like John or me, as far as, I guess, just getting better educated and better acquainted with the issues that are surrounding um, your community in particular, I mean, what would be some, maybe some writers besides yourself that you would, would point us towards or some, you know, some resources would you, would you advise? Well, certainly Joe Lumen out in California and San Diego and um, Alicia Crosby in North Carolina. Those are two people I think of just off the top of my head. And I would also say if, if you care about issues that impact people like me or my friends, then I would hope that your friendships look like the issues you care about. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a very good point. So, so often that's, that's, I find myself, I look up and around and I see I've surrounded myself with people like me, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I get that. I, I think part of that is just human nature. Um, I think we seek out, you know, we seek out sameness, you know, but there has to be some intentionality mm-hmm. to say, Hey, listen, I, 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 I can't know about this community if I don't, if I haven't befriended anyone in that community. And, and to do so, th- this is one thing that always used to bug me about evangelicals. Um, and when I was one, we were always told to go out and make friends. Mm-hmm. So that, right. you know, it was always an agenda, you know, like it was this sort of, sort of like we wanted to, you know, evangelize and proselytize, but you had to make friends. And so the purpose of the friendship was simply, it was an avenue to get them to come to church or do something else. So um, for the sake of, for no other reason other than just to befriend somebody and maybe learn something about their culture and about what, what you know, the kinds of things that they experience, um, we've got to step outside of ourselves. I right. think. And I think you're exactly right about that. Yeah. So that's a, that's good advice. Well, I think also, I think also it's, it's one thing to say that you are affirming of, you know, whatever group you're talking about, but if you're not willing to stand, okay, so let's say you are a, a pastor of a church, if you're not willing to stand up in front of your congregation and say the things that are happening to this group of people or this, or this group of people is absolutely wrong. And I'm standing here to tell you that this is not okay. You aren't creating a safe space for them. Right. You're just not. Right. Um, so I can I can say I'm affirming all day long, but if I'm not willing to stand up and say, okay, these laws that are being passed in these states, you know, one right after the other, it's scary as shit. Right. I mean, th- this is going to cause harm. I yeah. mean, so much harm to a group of people who, well, I obviously don't deserve it. Well, and they're already marginalized, and you're going to further yeah, they're marginalize. Already, they're already so. marginalized. They're already told that they have no worth, they don't matter, and now we're putting them in a place where they are going to get. We, we've seen the violence rising, yeah. you know, yeah. and yeah. it's it's Very not true. only it's not only self harm. We talk about that, you know, the the just the mere depression of watching these laws go into place is causing self harm, but it's also emboldening these bigots, these racists to come out of the woodworks again, which I think for a while, I don't think they were ever gone. You know, sadly, I don't think they were, you know, I think that we, they were just, they were hiding and someone like 
45 has given them the, the authority or whatever you want to yeah. call it to come out and just be openly violent again. Yeah. And it's yeah. scary as shit and we need to talk about it. And we, and if we aren't willing to talk about it and stand in the gap, we aren't making a safe space. Yeah. We just aren't. Yeah. That's right. Well, I'm excited for the book. I just added it to my Amazon shopping cart. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. So, uh, I, I, I do this a lot when I'm talking to someone and go, Ooh, I haven't, I haven't gotten this book yet. So it's, I'm literally sitting and go, okay, click. It's happening. Um, I am excited. Body becoming a pathway or a path to our liberation, right? Yeah. Um, it's a, I tell you what, if, if, if I could be so bold as to give people like me advice, it would be to read outside of, of your normal routine. Yeah. You know, maybe pick up a book by, um, somebody who John and I have talked lately about trying to find some Native American, perspectives, you know, some, some, um, yeah. indigenous perspectives, some, something else outside of my own experience to say, okay, there's more going on here than, than what has happened in, in our, in our little bubbles for the last 30, 40 years. So, um, I would highly recommend having not read it. I guarantee just based on this conversation, I guarantee it's going to be an excellent read and you're going to learn something from it. Um, it's going to give you an, an opportunity to, uh, to, to expand your perspectives and expand your mind a little bit. So for that, I, I appreciate you for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thank you. And if you're looking, if you're looking for uh, sort of native theology, Native American yeah. theology, Vine Deloria's "God Is Red" is really good. Okay, that's actually I'm typing it in. <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> think that's on my. Bigger. I think yeah, that's actually it. on my reading list already. I, I'm almost positive it is. Cool. I I have purposely for the last two years read um, almost everything I've read has been uh, either from the BIPOC community or from uh, LGBTQ community. Cool. Um, I have like just basically just submerged myself into that into that fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, very uh, cool. There are some amazing. Um, I just finished a uh, an African uh, science fiction trilogy. It's just uh, I think the first one's called Binti. But it's just like, it just blows my mind. I'm like, why didn't I not, I didn't know about any of these authors. It's just so amazing. You know, just taking the time to do a little research, find some, find some other voices out there and hear their stories. And it it can't not change your heart. It can't. It really can't. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna find yourself connecting with these people, uh, from different ethnicities, different races, different groups that you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't know their story. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, your, your book is going to be on that list now. Thank you. <laughs> and the invitation, of course, to come to West Texas, because I know, you know, do you, do you still have family in Abilene? Do you still have I don't, folks around no, us? No, I oh, don't. Okay. I was saying, if you had an excuse to come to Texas and just come on, pop down here. Well, um, I'm always happy to come to Texas because I miss the food and, and the hospitality. So, oh man, you don't, you don't, we got a Whataburger on every corner. Yeah, you don't so, have to ask twice for I mean, me to come to Texas. <laughs> Okay. All right. I think we need to make that happen. I would very, very much enjoy that. Yeah, that would be let's great. Let's make it happen. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yes. We're going to have all the links to your information and the book that is, I guess, getting released next week, right? Next week. Yeah. Okay. So, woohoo. That's so that's soon, but we'll have links to that as well. I highly recommend that you, uh, you dive into some of this work. It's, uh, it's going to prove to be, I think, life changing for a lot of folks. Yeah. So, um, for all of that, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming. It's been an honor and a whole lot of fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. It's good to meet y'all. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. 
If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.